Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Live every weekday at noon and then up as a podcast. This is MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs. I've got 30 minutes of express news on developments here in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers and top commentators. It's Wednesday, the 8th of November. Coming up on the program, calls for the president to step in to resolve Johannesburg's coalition crisis. Uber turns 10 in South Africa. Is it a happy birthday, though? Behind the damning and party report on the governance crisis at the University of Cape Town, the impact of Africa being called a zero-migration region, and why NASA is flying aeroplanes over the Western Cape. Several civil society organizations have formed a committee which is calling for President Ramaphosa to intervene to save the city of Johannesburg from what it terms coalition chaos. It includes the Ahmed Katrada Foundation as well as the organization Undoing Tax Abuse. From the foundation, I'm joined now by Nishan Balton, who is executive director. And in your own words, how chaotic are things? One in the last few years, you've had almost six mayors. And remember, Joburg has a mayoral committee system with an executive mayor. That's the apex of the city governance systems. And with that kind of instability and quality of mayors that have been appointed, the results of that are visible for its residents to see. It's incoherence in policy, incoherence in service delivery, an incoherence in terms of a, an overall vision and plan for the city that takes it out of this crisis and well into the future. The crisis is visible for people to see in their streets, their neighborhoods, and I suppose in many of the big institutions and facilities of the city. So it's visible, it's real, and it's something that we all feel on a day-to-day basis. Why do you think this has happened? What, what is the enabling climate, do you think? You know, at our last summit, Ferial Hafaji raised an issue which I don't think many of us had understood up until then, was that we have all been looking at state capture at a national level. What we didn't see was its visibility and presence across cities in the country and more so in a place like Johannesburg. So I think one is that you've seen the city through the board appointments and the qualities thereof and the diversion of resources away from delivery is evidence of what would be called city capture in a sense. I think secondly is the the fractious nature of these coalitions, which are not based on a common vision, but rather I think are coming together to keep each other out, for the ANC to keep the DA out or their coalition to keep the ANC out, but not on a common vision of what is required for the city. And lastly would be the quality of people appointed. If you look at the the court judgment now and the city manager, very, very clearly that's not qualified for the job. And and that might well be for many others in the city itself. 
which then leaves the thousands of other competent officials who do their jobs diligently at the mercy of either supervisors and managers who probably, in many cases, don't meet the, the criteria. So what sort of intervention are you looking for from the president? Well, one is to acknowledge that this is South Africa's premier city, and when the premier city in the, in, in the country is in a state of crisis, he must accept that it has national consequences. Failure here has national consequences as well as continental consequences. And what we are calling on the president is to ensure that the together national government to COPTA as well as the provincial government here looks at all of the legal mechanisms to intervene in this crisis. And they have a number of different options. They could place the city under administration. They could change its uh, mayoral committee system or even to suspend uh, the entire council and move towards new elections. But all of that needs discussion with broader civil society, needs deliberation with the citizens of this province, but that needs to be done with speed. Mm. I can't help but think that you might be wasting your time, though, because is municipal politics within the remit of the presidency? I think the, the power of a metro like Johannesburg, if ignored, and for it to collapse completely would be really beyond the realm of imagination for any for any political party or even the president to ignore. So I, I don't think that they can ignore this crisis. I think you've already seen signs of disquiet within the governing party about its coalition options. And I think that they might some some elements there might be sharing that the, the same concern. I think the provincial government, when I read a report of the MEC, local government in this province, it has already rated Joburg as a medium risk. That's one level below dysfunctionality in terms of their own assessment. And Johannesburg, for this country's GDP's uh, performance, is just too critical to allow it to collapse. What happens if the president turns you down? We have a summit on the 25th of November, the third summit on, on the crisis in Johannesburg. We will certainly place a response if it is an, as negative as that, we will place it be, be to that audience, which has thus far been made up of people from across the length and breadth of the city, black and white, rich and poor, formal and informal, to then engage with that response and look at uh, what we as residents and ratepayers need to begin to do. I'm going to leave it there. Nishan Balton, thank you very much for joining me. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. A report of a panel chaired by Judge Lex Mpati into the governance at the University of Cape Town provides, says our next guest, extraordinary evidence of everyday racialization on the campus. The Mpati report documents how this has corroded relationships, silenced discussion and dissent, and also has negated mechanisms of accountability. With me now is Jeremy Seekings, Professor of Political Studies and Sociology at UCT, who has written on the subject and how damaging this affair has been for the institution, for students and staff. So how damaging was it? Well, I think it's been damaging and uplifting in two respects. The actual experience of the last five years, perhaps even slightly more, has been very, very damaging for the institution. And there really is a crisis of morale, amongst staff, and many of the checks and balances within the institution have been eroded and compromised. So that's all incredibly damaging. 
And I think to some extent, clearly, the external image of the university has taken a big dent. Mm. That said, right, the fact that, in fact, there has been a, a serious critique, reflection on this experience is, uh, is very uh, promising. I think the Party panel's report is really extraordinary in its the clarity with which it's actually analysed the problem, stated the, the nature of the problem, and suggested many of the obvious solutions. So the fact that a problem has been really tackled head-on is really important. It makes me think that institutions like the University of Cape Town and other public institutions can actually demonstrate enormous resilience, even in the face of serious challenges. Having said that, uh, the report also says that uh, the actions of the former VC corroded relationships and silenced discussion within the university's administration. Surely that's going to be fairly difficult to recover from, and has that process started already? I think it's starting. But yes, you're absolutely right. It's going to be difficult to recover from. But I think we have to look, we have to discover new ways of engaging respectfully uh, and constructively in critique of the way our institutions operate. We don't want to have a situation where we, we rely on whistleblowers at the last minute, you know, really the 11th hour to blow the whistle and say something needs to be done. Mm. We need to discover and develop ways of actually engaging long before the whistle needs to be blown. And I think that there are some very practical ways forward. The Imparti panel has spent a lot of thought carefully about the responsibilities of council. The university council provides oversight of the governance university and is ultimately responsible. But even within the university, there's things that can be done. One of the things that I feel very strongly about is that we need to make sure the senior officers of the university, a vice-chancellor, deputy vice-chancellors, and other senior officers understand that they have clear responsibilities to be transparent and to be honest with other university constituencies, most obviously Senate, which in the university context is responsible for the academic uh, life of the university. So I think we need to challenge the idea that officers of public institutions are simply responsible to their line managers. We need to cultivate a practice whereby senior officials in public institutions and private institutions recognize that they have responsibilities to transparency and to all of the, if you like, the stakeholders, to use that rather unfortunate <laughs> term, the stakeholders within the institution. That might mean things like, for example, amending job descriptions, for example, to make it quite clear that people have multiple responsibilities. Not always easy, of course, to strengthen that oversight that you talk about and put in place the necessary or required mechanisms. That's right. And I mean, there's people who are much, much more experts on university governance than I am who could probably uh, shed more light on this. But one of the striking things about the UCT experience is that there was a lot of discussion behind the scenes, but it was really within a, the leadership group, uh, many of whom knew and talked to each other, but that they weren't transparent about the conflicts and the crisis and the leadership outside that little, that small group. Right? So it's not as if there weren't people who knew what was going on, but we didn't have the mechanisms by which that knowledge could actually give rise to effective deliberation, discussion, and the resolution of the problems. It's back to that culture of silence, isn't it? It is. It is. And, and unfortunately, I mean, I, you know, this is a point that we've been making in, in our schools, that the way in which South Africans have tried to address the past has often been to use, uh, if you like, to develop an ideology of transformation, right, which 
has obviously is incredibly important in many respects, but has one big downside. And the big downside is it becomes very easy, easily weaponized by rogue leaders to silence dissent. So one of the things we have to find a way of discussing openly and plainly is how do we talk about race and how do we talk about the way in which race can be abused and the race card played in an abusive way in order to silence dissent. So how do you begin that dialogue? Well, I think just trying to begin, beginning that dialogue, having opening up discussions is, an, is a necessary first step. So, for example, at the University of Cape Town, there is clearly a strong push at the moment that different parts of the university should enter into a, a serious discussion, for example, Senate, about the party panel report, about the lessons of this experience. So just setting up fora where you can have these discussions is going to be very important. I don't think it's going to be easy because there's going to be strong views and many of those views will be difficult to reconcile. But we have to find a way of having these conversations better than has been the case in the past. I'm going to leave it there, Professor Jeremy Seekings. Thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Now, Uber is celebrating 10 years in South Africa, but fair to say that not all passengers are happy with the service. You'll know there have been reports of cars being in a poor state, uh, bad drivers, frequently cancelled trips. There have been strikes as far as the driving force is concerned, and in some instances, passengers being attacked and robbed. So how is this global brand going to fix things going forward? Joining us now is Kahiso Kahole, who is general manager for Uber in sub-Saharan Africa. And let's start with this. How successful have you been in terms of market share and rides over the past decade? Since we came in 2013, this was a new category within transportation. You know, we're still a small part of the bigger transportation landscape. But if you've seen the growth of how we've moved from just being a very urban-based product, you know, we've been able to scale out to more than 30 cities in South Africa. You know, we're servicing people broader than those in sort of the core cities. I think that in itself is an achievement to be able to bring access to these services. We can think some years back and remember that there was a time where if you needed to go out at night, um, it was very difficult to arrange transportation. Mm. I think that's been the impact that Uber has made to riders and eaters alike. And then for the earners, we've created a million earnings opportunities in South Africa since coming into the country. Proven again, Kenya shows that we're able to sustain those opportunities for flexible work, for gig work as such. So I think that's been a hallmark of our impact within South Africa. But the service has not been without its problems. There have been suggestions of a deterioration in service quality. Uh, there are increasing reports of passengers experiencing trips in unroadworthy vehicles and also serious allegations of passenger safety being compromised. What are you doing about that? So we lean into all these complaints and queries and on a trip-by-trip basis, you know, we unpack what's going on. As we've continued to scale, not without problems and challenges, but on the whole, our vehicle inspections, we've even added more controls in terms of that. You know, it's not just onboarding, it's not annual, there's also ad hoc inspections that happen. And the ratings that riders and drivers give each other on a trip also help us to be able to pick up uh, instances where the service quality was not up to standard, and we have processes to be able to intervene on that. On the whole, as a brand, you know, from the research and feedback that we get, we continue to grow from a preference perspective, 
We continue to lead in terms of safety perceptions. We also continue to lead from an affordability and reliability. Mm. So on the whole, the business has grown substantially, but there are points and there are instances where service quality may not meet the expectations of our riders. And that's something that we continue to lean into and focus on. So really do encourage riders to continue to report these things on the app. When you give the rating, you know, add that detail, it triggers processes on our back end to be able to intervene and ensure that we continue to give a service that's up to the expectation. All, all well and good, but is that sufficient, though, because there have been reported criminal incidents involving rides? Surely it's about putting in even more additional security measures uh, to protect both passengers and drivers. 100%. So that's why we have also our industry-leading safety toolkit, so if you look at over the past, say, three, four years, what we've introduced here, we've got emergency response that's the worst of situations to be able to come and meet you wherever you are in South Africa. You know, the response times on average about six minutes, which is incredible uh, in terms of what you've been able to build in terms of those the emergency response service, which is, includes medical, includes arm response as well. But we've also put in tools to prevent. We've got audio recording, which was launched last year which gives the ability for you to be able to record maybe disagreements. So these are not necessarily extreme situations, but it does help us to be able to adjudicate, to be able to make interventions there. And the last piece is what we call uh, our law enforcement response team. This is a 24-hour team that is ready to assist law enforcement with any incidences that happen. So we work closely with SAPs and the like to ensure that if any incident happens on our platform, we're able to assist them in terms of progressing cases and information that's needed to close that out. Do you concede that you could improve your strategy for addressing the issue of drivers cancelling trips and that has led to reliability problems for your service? So in terms of the cancellations, I mean, we've also come a long way. If I take you back to, I think, around the end of 2021, Because of safety concerns from drivers' perspective, we introduced, you know, full visibility of where they're going, where they're picking up the trip and where they're dropping it off. And they're able to make decisions in terms of whether they accept the trip or not. And what we saw there was a big drop in cancellations, and we really leaned into that. And we put in platform technology that has improved the instances of driver cancellation. So in terms of the cases and the data that we have on our side, you know, we are seeing a steady decline in terms of the number of uh, driver-induced cancellations. However, around the outskirts of the city, sometimes there's not that many drivers that are available and you know drivers can pick and choose. And there are some instances where a driver may actually choose to decline a trip. And we're consistently trying to use our technology, use the platform to be able to intervene. But in terms of the overall experience, there's been dramatic improvements on the platform in terms of the ride experience. Are you confident that you have a happy driver force many as we well know have protested for better pay they're looking for improved safety conditions are you taking any concrete actions in that respect to address these grievances yes so we always look into the total cost of ownership of you know operating on the platform we're always looking for opportunities to increase earnings to drivers as well and we've we've really made some tangible strides with relation to that. So some of the items that we've uh, addressed is, you know, reducing uh, the waiting time between trips. So that increases the earnings drivers can make per hour. We've also very careful in terms of how we manage our marketplace. So some of the 
constraints that you put in in terms of onboarding additional vehicles also help ensure that the productivity of drivers is increased. They're able to make more per hour. So that is something that we continue to work on with fuel prices increasing, recently decreasing as well. We continue to update our models and our pricing. We're looking to also move further in terms of uh, how we do pricing to be more reactive to the conditions. So if it's raining, if the market's under stress, how do we create those opportunities uh, for better earnings, but also balance it out with better reliability for riders. All right, I'm going to leave it there. Kajiso Khaula, thank you very much indeed. General Manager for Uber, Sub-Saharan Africa. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. Now, there's a new report on migration trends in Africa, and it gives figures that show the continent is generally something called a negative net migration zone. Uh, More migrants leaving Africa than are coming to the continent. So the question, I guess, is what does this mean for Africa's economic future? Michael Mutava is with us, research fellow at the New South Institute. Michael, what then are the primary factors contributing to this negative net migration zone status? Well, thank you very much. Um, Negative net migration basically means we have more number of migrants leaving the continent than coming to the continent. But I just want to highlight the fact that uh, the report really does bust a lot of myths for example that the continent the continent is a, a continent of mass exodus so having a net migration does not necessarily mean that a lot of people are sort of leaving the continent you must understand that the, the, the continent has some people originating from the continent and ending still on the same continent so I just want to to say that it does not uh, uh, sort of have an, an an impact to say that a lot of people are free, fleeing from the continent. It just shows that we have more immigrants than we do have immigrants, but really the more bigger proportion of people migrating within the continent is bigger than those that are actually emigrating, those that are leaving the continent. I understand, but surely the key question here is not how many people are leaving, but who is leaving. And often the people that yes. are leaving are people that have skills that the continent needs. Yes. Um, Well, again, I just want to say that um, the people that are leaving the continent uh, are not as many as those ones that are moving within the continent. That is something that uh, the report (laughs) highlights very well. To be very precise, 52% of the people leaving the continent just live to other parts of the continent. Uh, I just want to say that we were trying to bust myths or to draw attention from the, the the thinking that a lot of people, Africa is sort of a dark continent, a lot of people are moving away from the continent and sort of show that there is a low-hanging fruit that exists when we look at the migration within Africa, the intra-African migration, because that is a low-hanging fruit that has been frowned upon. There has not been, uh, a lot of light has not been cast upon it. So that is the main message of, of, of that paper, not necessarily that a lot of people are moving out. Within the continent then, from where are they moving and where are they going to? Exactly. So... Some of the major patterns and trends that we find is is that within the continent, migration is within the regions, especially within, for example, SADC to SADC, ESC to ESC, and ECOWAS to ECOWAS. Although we have a little bit of moderate movement between regions, for example, SADC and ESC, but a lot of movement, major patterns, a lot of movement happens within the regions and moderately 
between the regions. Uh, we also realize that um, this might be because of the historical uh, um, formations of our countries. Remember, we are people who have been divided, but really across uh, the borders, we have the same communities, social ties and economic ties. That explains a little bit why we have a lot of intra, um, uh, intra-region movement within, that is within region, like SADC to SADC, ESC to ESC, and ECOWAS to ECOWAS. So that's why we have a lot of a lot of the movements, and this can be shown by the patterns mm. of movement, you know, the, the, the routes. They are mostly bilateral. For example, from Burkina Faso to Cote d'Ivoire and from Cote d'Ivoire to Burkina, Burkina Faso. So that kind of, of movement just within the region and sort of neighborhood alliances uh, that come up in the report. Michael, what's also interesting in this study is the majority of migrants tend to be young and male. That's not unexpected. But this demographic trend surely would affect the socioeconomic dynamics within the countries that they choose to leave? Well, um, well, there is that element of, of, of the countries where they're living, but have we considered that they, when in the countries of destination, they then send remittances in the countries that they're coming from? Remember, um, you know, when you go and work in a foreign country, you at some point you're going to be sending money back home, and that contributes to the, it sort of makes up for the loss in labor. Okay. But again, we also realize something else, that migration is not static. We have something we call the migration hump, where as the income of a country increases, migration increases and then it first and then it plateaus and then it begins to reduce. So we're not going to forever see an exodus, say, from a low income area. Uh, at some point, as their income, pros- as, as, as income prospects improve, we're going to find that uh, the migration plateaus and then it begins to reduce. This has been shown in, in countries like Brazil, you know, uh, and even here in Africa, we also see um, um, similar uh, instances where there's a unique relationship between uh, um, income and the level of migration. So I think it's not entirely a bad thing, except that as the remittances increase and as the level of uh, migration increases, we are going to have them balance out or even out in the long run. I'm going to thank you for uh, joining me. That's Michael Mutava, Research Fellow at the New South Institute. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Let's end the program with this story. And if you're a flight radar app user, you might have seen two aircraft from the National Aeronautics and Space Administration in the skies over the Western Cape. And what are they doing? Well, collecting data for a unique biodiversity research project. NASA commissioning Gulfstream 3 and Gulfstream 5 planes to fly for surveys until the end of the year, I understand, all within different regions of interest in the so-called Greater Cape Floristic Region. More details now from Dr. Jasper Slingsby, the South African lead scientist for the Bioscape project. He's with us now on MoneyWeb at midday. And firstly, can you outline the main objectives then of this endeavor? The main objective is really about looking at remote sensing of biodiversity and what we can do with the kind of latest cutting-edge sensors. Remote sensing of biodiversity is something that's been around since we first started putting satellites in space or even cameras on airplanes, but now the instruments that we can put up there are far more sophisticated, and so we're really exploring kind of the cutting edge of this with the instruments that are, I'll probably give you more on later rather than get into the details, but imaging spectrometers and laser altimeters are, are the main focus for this campaign. With what objective? 
Well, it's all about understanding biodiversity, but then also being able to map and monitor biodiversity um, and improve our management thereof. You know, we are in a global biodiversity crisis, and that has major feedbacks on society through the impacts on nature's contributions to people, but also through risk, like things like drought, fire, water quality, all kinds of things. So if we can manage our environments better, then we can obviously improve those feedback and reduce the cost to society. What yeah. specific uh, region are we talking about in terms of the flyover? So for this project, we're focusing on the Greater Cape Floristic Region. So it's most of the Western Cape and portions of the Northern and Eastern Cape. But this is a science project. This is proof of concept stuff. Uh, much of what we create probably will feed in and be useful to management of environments in, in the in the region. But in the long run, we're really looking to what we can do once these sensors are on satellite. So this is kind of proof of concept stage. Some of the stuff that we'll be generating will be will be handy, and we're we're engaging very closely with local, provincial, and national government and various entities therein around uh, the potential applied outcomes. But I think a lot of it will be, you know, a once-off map because they're a set of once-off flights. But ultimately, it's all about getting ready for when these things are on satellite. And that should be happening in the next five or so years. The issue there is just that the satellite goes up. It's got a fancy sensor on it. But if you don't know what to do with the data, it's not useful for you. Uh, to you for a few years until you build that capacity. So I think a big benefit here is kind of making the local community aware of this and getting people kind of excited and developing the skills to be able to use these instruments once they go up straight away rather than having Mm. that additional time lag. So Jasper, I'm assuming the big challenge though at the end of all of this is to integrate the data from the NASA research, uh, satellites, Mm -hmm. and I'm assuming ground observation that you've just referenced is also important. The objective would be to create a comprehensive understanding of the biodiversity. That's going to be interesting to say the least. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot going on. I mean, obviously, uh, so we're playing with new technologies in the sky, but there's also a lot of new technologies on the ground, and that and how one relates them becomes a big challenge. So we, you know, in the field, we're doing things like collecting environmental DNA by getting water samples from rivers, and from that you can work out, you know, all the species that are in the catchment above that point in the river and that kind of thing. So, so there's a lot of interesting different technology coming together here, and, and I mean, that's the cutting-edge science component of it, is how do you relate environmental DNA to maps of vegetation uh, or various properties of the vegetation in that catchment. Uh, we also have acoustic recorders, so we're recording bird calls and frog calls, and how do you relate that to the kinds of measures that we can actually see with these instruments? Uh, and there, there's a few steps removed, but there's assumptions you can make and there's models you can use, and actually, yeah, I'm amazed at what we are able to do at this stage, uh, but obviously it's just getting better the more we play with it and, and the more we ground to truth and, and understand what we're dealing with. I don't want to reduce your research and the work that you're doing to a single headline, but What's the one big question that you want to answer here? Yeah, how can we better conserve nature and its contributions to people, I suppose? So we're all about trying to improve the information or the access to information required to make better decisions. But obviously, to make better decisions is not just having the information, but also the understanding. So we're really focusing on both, kind of improving our understanding of how biodiversity works and then improving our kind of ability to map and monitor what's going on on the ground in hopefully kind of near real time once the satellites are up. Is it unusual to have an agency like NASA involved in something like this? No, not at all. I mean, NASA have been you know, at the forefront of satellite remote sensing. Uh, it's quite funny 
before I worked with NASA, you know, I was always thought of them as one entity, but NASA are a massive, complicated set of separate research centers all over the U.S. and all doing different things. So you'll see in the news on one day that NASA are launching some new uh, satellites, but they're also developing a new telescope and they're also doing biodiversity research on the Cape, but it's, it's all different groups within them. But they've been working in this space for a very long time. They've had a biodiversity and ecological conservation program going for decades. So this is very, very normal. Um, they're actually big players that we can currently uh, have the Geo Week Ministerial Summit happening in Cape Town. And yeah, NASA are big players on that space, along with the European Space Agency and others. You know, it's hosted by the Department of Science and mm. Innovation here. But this is... It's not abnormal for NASA to be doing this. It's just quite exciting that they chose to do it here. Are there any early observations uh, as far as the uh, the work is concerned, or is it too early? It's too early to say in terms of the question we have been asking. Obviously, we have collected observations, but we haven't really turned that into knowledge and data products yet. We're at the moment just running around like mad, trying to make sure we're sending the planes to the right places, avoiding cloud. You know, dealing with all the logistics of, of the project. But yeah, in the months to come, it's going to be very exciting to see what we've got. And I'm looking forward to that conversation in months to come. Dr. Jasper Slingsby, thank yeah. you very much indeed. Lead scientist at the Bioscape Project. Thank you. And as we finish the program, other stories on our radar quickly. National disaster declarations have been issued for the Western Cape and the Eastern Cape after flooding that hit the provinces in September. And you'll remember significant damage was caused. And the world is said to have been hotter in 2023 than in any other year on record. This is a declaration from scientists before the landmark COP28 climate summit, which takes place later this month. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays, then up as a podcast. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.